All right, so let's go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 22. Again, come turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 22. Okay, I'll go ahead and start reading us off. Verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope in you, or that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the days were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. It's a lot of verses. Thanks for staying with me. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you today as a royal priesthood as a group of believers who desires to be obedient to you, who desires to live out our faith, I pray, Lord, that as we examine your word, that you may convict us, you may encourage us, and you may point us towards what is good, what is holy, and what is right. I pray that you may help us listen to your word, that we may see what you have called us to do in this world that is hostile to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your word may not return void, but it may seep within us, it may transform our hearts, transform our actions, so that when we go out into the world, we may be strange, we may be weird, Lord, so that we may point to the one who has died for the unrighteous. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the best Taylor Swift album ever made, Midnight's, The artist writes, familiarity breeds contempt. Let me say that again. Familiarity breeds contempt. 
And in a way, is this not true for us in our own Christian lives? When I sat down earlier this week to prepare for this sermon, I was reading through the verses and I thought to myself, okay, gospel, okay, how to live as a Christian, okay, baptism, check, check, check. I know all this. Why do we need to have another sermon on things that we've already repeated previously? And as I sat on that thought for a while, the more I became convicted and repented. And maybe you guys might be thinking the same thing as you guys read through today's passage. When did I somehow think in my heart that I was better than the gospel, that I've mastered the gospel? When did I somehow become lax with my sins and take the uh, grace of God for granted? When did I somehow become nonchalant in my war against sin and growing in godliness and fighting the good fight? When did my familiarity with God breed contempt? Perhaps we think this way because the truth is our faith is leaky. That means is that when we're around godly people, when we're in the word, when we're in prayer, we recognize what is beautiful, what is attractive, and the cross is good to us. But the longer we're away from godliness, the more that we're not in the word, the more that we're not in prayer, and the more that we're not thinking about such things, suddenly it becomes less and less attractive to us. The cross has less of a hold in our hearts. We have less of a desire to be godly, and the idea of evangelism just seems like a chore. Um, let me give an example. When I was in seventh grade, um, it actually finally hit me at that age, um, in one instance, how much my parents have done for me. It was not that big. It was actually my parents were driving me to school. Seventh grade, I went to Walker Junior High. 7.30, she drops me off at the parking lot. And all of a sudden, my mom just turned to me and said, I'm sorry for not being able to do better for you. I'm sorry for not giving you the life that I want to give you. And that hit me. I think since that day on, like it reeled in my head all the things that they've given up for me. Um, I think if you're an immigrant child, that kind of resonates with you. The idea that your parents came to a foreign land, um, worked from Monday to Saturday, you barely saw them, so that they can give you a better life, um, that shook me. And the thing is, that I still continuously take her for granted. I still take my parents for granted. And it's, not, it's only in the absence of those blessings, um, in these moments where I don't see her or I'm reminded by her, that I think to all the good that she's done for me. And so what are some things that you guys take for granted? Maybe it is how much your parents have done for you. Maybe it's the fact that we're able to congregate here and pray and read the word. Maybe it's the fact that you have a good education, or you have the opportunity to live a good life. But I'm convinced that the item that we take for granted the most is the grace of God. If we don't, again, immense ourselves in God's people, if we don't read the word, if we don't spend time in prayer, if we don't remind ourselves that we were bought with a price, then our faith will slowly leak and will no longer be distinguishable from the world. We will crumble in prosecution. We will lose our joy for the gospel, our zeal for loving one another, for evangelism. Romans 10, 17 states that faith comes from listening and hearing the word of God. So today, let's come and be reminded, what should our conduct be as Christians in this world? What does it mean to be bought with a price? What is it that Christ has done for us on the cross? And so our sermon in a sentence for today 
is live righteously, for you are not your own because you have died. Again, if this is your first time listening to me preach, I like doing sermons in a sentence. What that basically means is if you were distracted, you fell asleep, um, something else is on your mind, this is your take-home point. This is the sentence to always center back to if you're lost. Live righteously, for you are not your own because you have died. Again, we have three points for us today. Point one, live righteously. Point two, for you are not your own. Point three, because you have died. Fairly simple. If you get your sentence, you know the points. Okay, point one, live righteously. Verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. For the last couple weeks, we've been tracing 1 Peter's arguments how we as Christians ought to live in a world that is hostile to us because we ultimately live in between two worlds. We're living in this physical world, but at the same time, our citizenship, what matters most to us, is in heaven. And we have to imagine Peter understands suffering. He understands living in a world that is hostile to him. Um, Peter, again, mentions suffering more than any other book in the Bible. He mentions Jesus' suffering um, because it was so critical to him. Remember, Peter was the first one to confess that Jesus was Lord, the first one to deny him three times immediately afterwards, and then saw Jesus die for him on the cross while he was still disobedient to him. And so Peter understood suffering. And this world that hates us, we're to look at Peter and how he writes to citizens, to slaves, to wives, to husbands, and now today to all believers on what it means to be holy, and what it means to live righteously. And in this passage today, it seems like living righteously means to be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. And whenever you guys see a list in the Bible, a good thing for us to do is to think to ourselves, what is the relationship with these traits? Like, what do they have in common? Why is Peter writing in this order specifically? And it seems like the relationship is that these are all inward emotions. It's as if Peter is saying, okay, before you go out and be holy, before you go out and love your enemies, before you go out and save the world, your heart needs to be changed first. Living righteously has more to do with your heart state than it it does to do with your works or what you do in the world. And so Peter writes, number one, be like-minded. This doesn't mean think the exact same way. This doesn't mean that we have to be exactly the same. It means that we are all headed towards the same direction, the same goal. So it means that we use our diversity, right? Our age, our personality differences, our different backgrounds, our different cultures. We use these things to point to our identity as Christians. We're all part of the same body in Christ. 
We may be different limbs, different functions, but at the end of the day, we celebrate who he is. Our identity as Christians takes precedence over anything else, regardless of our ethnicity, our wealth, our jobs. These are all second to us as Christians. Then Peter writes, we are called to have sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart or compassion. And so to have sympathy is to be emotionally moved by, and be sincerely interested in the feelings of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And to have a tender heart is kind of similar. To have compassion is kind of similar. But to have a tender heart or compassion implies more of a desire to be ready to show each other kindness. Um, let me give an illustration for this. So when I'm on YouTube, sometimes I go through YouTube Reels. Um, I don't go on TikTok. I just use YouTube Reels. And one of the videos was a, a woman talking on a podcast. And he was talking about the differences between the West Coast and the East Coast. And she was talking about how people from the West Coast are kind, but they're not nice. But the people from the East Coast are nice, but they're not kind. So diving into that, basically what that means is if she had a flat tire and she was in L.A., then people would come up to her and say, hey, that sucks. I'm so sorry for you. Like, I can't believe this happened to you but no one would stop by and help her. She has to fix her own tire. But if she went to the East Coast, then they won't be kind to her, right? They'll look at her and say like, what is wrong with you? You're so stupid. How did you let that happen to you? You don't know how to fix a tire. What is wrong with you? But they'll be nice, meaning that they'll t push her aside. They'll be bullying her, but they push her aside and they'll fix her tire. And as Christians, we're called to be both. We're called to be both kind and nice. I know some of you guys are thinking, yeah, I'm nice or I'm kind. We're called to be both. We're called to sincerely care about the hurdles and the trials of those next to us. And at the same time, we're actually supposed to do something about it. It's not just sentiment. We're thinking of ways, how can I meet the needs of those next to me? What has God given me that I can use to lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ? And this is all done in the context of family. Right? Peter writes, we have to look at each other in brotherly and sisterly love. A good illustration for this is if you have a child, right? you discipline your own child. You don't go to your neighbor's house and you don't discipline their child. You discipline your own child. When it's time for dinner, you're expecting your own children. You're not expecting your neighbor's children to come over and eat at your house. So in the same way, this right here is your ministry. Those next to you. This is your family. This is the people you are to expect for dinner time. These are the people that you're feeding. You're called to say the hard stuff to. You're called to encourage. You're called to be tenderhearted. You're called to be kind to, because this is your family in Christ. Not only that, Peter writes, you're also called to have a humble mind. That's hard for us, because we're self-centered. We only think about ourselves. We think about how other people view us. We think about how we acted. We think about what's best for us, how other people can be accessories to us. But Peter here is calling us to be humble, put ourselves second. Think of others before yourselves. Think of meeting each other's needs before your own. The question for us today is, do you have these qualities, church? If these are a mark of a righteous believer, do you have these qualities? Are you like-minded? 
Meaning that, is being a Christian good enough for you guys to love each other? Or are you fragmented, cliquish, and isolated? Are you the type of person that thinks to yourselves, okay, I love these people in my church, but not those people because those people are annoying. Or those people are introverts. Or those people are socially awkward. So them being Christian is not good enough for me. I only love this part of my church. If so, then Peter is telling you to change, to look to Christ. Being a Christian should be enough for us to love one another because we're family. You should actually be rocked emotionally if those next to you are going through emotional hurdles or trials. And you should be tender-hearted, meaning you should be looking for ways to meet those needs because, again, we're a family in Christ. And you might be thinking, Kevin, all right, these are all emotions. How do I obey commands to feel a certain way? What if I don't love them? What if I don't feel anything for them? Like, I'm, I don't want to be nice to that person, right? And that's true. Commands for emotions are hard. It's like telling a depressed person, be happy. It's not going to work. But the thing is that these inward emotions only work when you're connected to the body of Christ. These are just fruits. These aren't just work commands, right? Think of them as fingers. Like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-heartedness or compassion, and um, humble mind. These are fingers that are connected to a body. And we can only express these fruits when you're connected to the body of Christ, when you're attached to Christ. And so when you're in the Word, when you're walking closer to Christ, these things naturally manifest themselves. In the same way, when you walk towards something hot, you naturally get warm. You naturally take off maybe your jacket. In the same way, when we walk to Christ, we take off layers of our sin, and we naturally become warm. We express these five emotions. And what Peter is saying here is that those emotions aren't an end to itself. It's not you just develop these emotions, a.k.a. you're righteous. It's you express these emotions inwardly so that you can express something outwardly. This outward transformation, Peter writes about in verse 9. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. So according to Peter, living righteously is not just an inward change, but it's also an outward change. It means that when you are persecuted for your faith, when you are wronged, when you're slandered, when you're gossiped about, you don't respond in kind, but you love. That's the litmus test of a true believer that's living righteously. And this is bizarre to the world. How do we know this? Because the world hates each other. The world claws at each other. Like, this became very clear to me recently um, when my students were telling me about this guy named Dream. Okay, I don't watch who this guy is. I have no idea who this guy is, actually. But apparently, Dream is this guy who plays games on his computer, and he streams it, meaning like he shows this to an audience. But the thing is, Dream, this guy, apparently never shows his face. He just plays this game called Minecraft. I, I actually don't know how that game works. Like, it's like Legos. Um, he does this, and other people watch him play this game. And one day, Dream was like, you know what, I'm going to show you guys my face. We're going to do a face reveal. And apparently, people were so interested in watching this guy's face that like tens of millions showed up to watch him show his face. So he garnered the courage, he showed his face, and the first thing trending on Twitter, number one that day was, why is Dream so ugly? 
Like, my students told me they actually stayed up for hours just so they can message him and slander him. Like, why are we so obsessed with that? Yet as Christians, we're called to bless those who revile us. In a world that desires to call at each other, we're called to bless and love. It means that when your boss, let's say, promotes somebody else because of his disdain or her disdain for your faith, it means that when your friends in college ostracize you because of your backward stances, because of your biblical beliefs, maybe you're demonized because of what you stand for, what is true, you hold firm, and you love, and you bless. And Peter says we bless because we have an inheritance that we have inherited. We're living out what we have already inherited. And like this, con- uh, this concept is bizarre, but it's definitely a mark of a mature believer. And it's became real to me because of my mom. So I'm blessed to have a very mature mother, a very mature believer. And um, some of you guys know that I am a DACA recipient. What that basically means is that when my parents moved to the U.S., um, the lawyer that was working with my parents ended up taking advantage of my parents and scammed them so that we were removed from the line to get a citizenship. And that lawyer just dipped. And so my parents had to work like, they used to be doctors, now they had to work nine to five, nine to eight hours from Mondays to Saturdays. Um, One day, when I was in high school, I became friends with this guy named Vincent through tennis. And we were playing tennis, and both of our parents showed up. And my mom seemed kind of like frazzled, annoyed, right? And she seemed kind of composed afterwards. And as she was driving me home, she looked at me and she said, hey, are you friends with that guy, Vincent? And I said, yeah. And she said, you know, his parents were the ones who scammed us. And I was thinking like, oh, dude, let's go back. Like, we got him. This is easy, right? But my mom looked at me and said, no, it's been 10 years. We're called to forgive. And this made, again, no sense to me. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is checkmate. Let's go back. But my mom, being the mature believer, set an example for me and said, no, um, because forgiveness, because morality is bigger than us, we're called to bless and forgive. And we're able to bless our enemies because, again, in verse 12, Peter cites the Bible, as we we ought to do. He cites Psalms 34, and Peter says, God's eyes are on us. We're able to bless those who persecute us because God's eyes are on us, because his ears are open to our prayers, because God's eyes are on you, meaning that everyone else can forget you. They may villainize you. They may demonize you, but Christ knows the truth because he is objective justice. Even when people say false things about you, even when you're persecuted, he knows the truth, and his ears are open to your prayers. And so we come to him because he listens. We come to him because he hears. He sees us. And his face, his face is against those who do evil. This is best illustrated in a quote by Mother Teresa. She writes, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of being selfish and having ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you may win false friends and some true enemies succeed anyway. 
If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone can destroy overnight. Build anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Be, uh, do good anyway. Give the world your best, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. Because you see, in the final analysis, it is between you and your God. It was never between you and them anyway. We bless our enemies. We live righteously. Because at the end of the day, it's not between us and them. It's between us and God. That leads us to point two. For you are not your own. Let me say that again. For you are not your own. It's going to read verses 13 to 17. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right, so tracing Peter's argument here, seems like he is saying we are to call to live righteously, and that means developing those inward traits so that we can outwardly love our enemies, we can bless those who revile us. And in verses 13 to 17, Peter is saying we can do this, we can live righteously because we are not our own. Okay, so a good representation for this is actually my shoes. Yeezys, okay? So I bought these from Jeremiah a couple years ago, and I remember the first time I bought them, um, I got a lot of compliments. Like, I went to my classroom, all my students were suddenly in awe of me, right? They're like, wow, Mr. Jung, you have Yeezys. It was easy for me to give classroom discipline because they respected me. Then, Kanye did some recent things. <laughs> and suddenly, my students look up at me and they're like, Mr. Jung, what are you wearing? You should throw those away. Go buy new shoes. This is because, again, Yeezys are almost seen as a representation of its creator, Kanye. And so, no joke, like a couple days ago, I was talking to my friend. He looked at me and he was like, so you're like basically wearing Hitler's shoes, huh? Again, because Yeezys are a representation of Kanye. Similarly, we as Christians are representations of our God. We are here to represent our Creator, Jesus Christ. And things that we do reflect our Creator. And so we live righteously, we love those who revile us because we do not want to blemish the name of Christ, our Creator. We're representatives of God and we're never afraid because we are representing our creators, our creator. And we're instead always ready to give a reason for who we are. And being weird is always going to garner a response. Loving your enemies, living righteously is always going to garner questions because being weird always garners questions. So I teach APUSH. And a lot of my A-Push students also have AP language and composition. 
And after class, a lot of my students stay back to complain about their English, uh, AP language and composition professor or teacher. And they stay back and they're always like, Mr. Jung, like, this teacher hates us. Like, he's always angry at us. So I decided to, you know, entertain this once. I looked at them and said, hey, like, why, did, why does he hate you? My student, Oni, he was like, it's because we never turn in our essays. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a good reason to be mad. I get it. And then my class was like, no, you don't get it, Mr. Jung. He said that if we are not willing to feed knowledge, to eat knowledge, then he is not going to eat food. This teacher decided to start, like, start a hunger strike until all the students turned in their essays. He just threw away his food, sat at his table and said, I'm not going to eat until every single one of you guys turn in your essays. And I sat there, I looked at my students, and I thought to myself, that is crazy. That is awesome. I respect this guy. I wouldn't do it, but that is great. So I had to run up to him, right? I had to ask, like, why are you doing this? Why? Like, what is motivating you? Being weird is always going to garner curiosity and questions. And nothing is more weird than loving your enemies. Nothing is more weird than being a Christian, being countercultural, and living righteously. You're always going to receive questions. And so Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, I'll just read this out loud for us, writes, this is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Being a Christian is going to be weird because it is always countercultural. Being a Christian means you're not boasting in your wisdom. That's secondary. It means you're not boasting in your wealth. That's temporary. And it means you're not boasting in your strength. You know that will soon pass. It's boasting in something that we can't see in this world. And that's what makes it so weird for those who are in this world because they only see what is finite. We see something that is eternal. And so we boast in Christ. We don't fear persecution, and we have a reason for our conduct. And what do we respond with? Not with just arguments. Like, I know that this passage is always used to justify how we need to learn apologetics and learn reasons to defend our faith, and that is good. We should have a reason, scientifically and philosophically, for why we believe in what we believe in. But at the end of the day, apologetics does not save souls. Apologetics is defense. Love, your testimony, your grace, or the grace of God, these things are offensive. These things are the reasons we give alongside our apologetics to bring people to Christ. And so we live righteously. We have a reason for what we believe in because you are not your own, because you represent a God who has done good things through you. Okay, so point three, because you have died. How do we live righteously? Because we are not our own. Why are we not our own? Because you have died. Let me go ahead and read verses 18 to the end of 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who were in the past disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Okay, so the truth is we're able to live righteously because your former selves have died. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, when you confessed your sins and you put your faith in him, your former selves with your own selfish desires have died and you arose as a new creation. What does baptism signify? Like baptism doesn't save you. And Paul and Peter both testify to that. But baptism points to what did save you, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, let me go ahead and read Romans 3 to 4. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Again, stating this clearly, baptism is a symbol for what saves you. So how does it symbolize what saves you? Well, let's think about sin. What is the penalty for sin? It is death. And so when we enter the waters of baptism, what that's representing is the waters of judgment. If you're in the waters in sin, you're recognizing that in my sinful self, I don't deserve to come out. I deserve to die in those waters. But there is one person who deserves to come out, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when you go into the waters of baptism, Jesus dies in your place. You're into Jesus in death. But Jesus, again, is the only one that's allowed to come out. So just as you were baptized into death and your former self has died, you also, in Jesus, get to arise and be resurrected as a new creation. So as you rise out of the waters in baptism, what you're symbolizing is, I have given my life to Christ. My old self that desired sin has passed away. He's in those waters, she's in those waters. And I've come out as a new creation that desires Christ. And so when we're saved, when we give our life to Christ, we're baptized because we want to declare to the world your good conscience towards God and what Christ has done for you. And now Peter is bringing baptism and the Noah's Ark and all of this for two reasons. Okay? The first reason is that Peter is trying to explain that Noah was a sinner. Noah did nothing to deserve to be saved in the ark. With the other seven, he didn't deserve to live. He was still a sinner. But Christ saved him out of grace. In the same way, we are saved from grace. We are a new creation. Okay, the second reason why Peter writes about this is to show that God is victorious. Again, it's going to get a little supernatural here, which makes sense because our faith is supernatural. So Peter is referring to here, when he talks about the spirits in prison in verse 19, who is disobedient, he's talking about Genesis 8, and where in the times of Noah, there were fallen angels that mated with f human females to create Nephilims. 
And in the flood, those Nephilims were wiped away. But it seems like Peter is referring to here, and Jude testifies to this as well, that those fallen angels are imprisoned. And when Jesus was crucified, those spirits, those fallen angels, were applauding Jesus' death. But Jesus went down to them and proclaimed his victory. So what is this for? It's not for us to read so far into this that we lose light of the gospel. It's not for us to become so obsessed with this, uh, this story so that we somehow lose um, light of what this chapter is about. Peter is introducing this story because he wants to remind the believers that Jesus is victorious, that we're able to persevere. We have the confidence to persevere. We can love our enemies. We can live righteously because Jesus is alive, because he proclaimed to the fallen angels his victory, and we know that he has won. Um, and you guys all know this. It's so much easier to watch something when you know the ending. Um, I don't watch sports regularly. I watch League of Legends. It's a video game. And in that video game, sometimes I watch highlights of games. And when I watch highlights of games, and I don't know who won the game, it's stressful. Especially when it comes to the wire. Like, I get very stressed. I get really anxious because I know, like, it can go one way or the other. But if I already know the team that won and I'm watching highlights, then all that stress is gone. Even if my team, like, completely loses, like, is losing, I'm not worried because I know at the end of the day, the team I was rooting for won. I know the ending. In the same way, you know the ending. You have the Bible. You know that Jesus had died and resurrected and will come back again. You know that the righteous will be vindicated. You know that you will be renewed and that all tears will be wiped away, Revelations 21. And so because of this, we have the power to persevere. One day there will come where every knee will bow, even the most hardest heart will bow, where justice is complete and all persecution is gone. But until that day, let us love those who revile us. Let us love those who persecute us. Let us bless those who hate us because that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That on his last day before he was crucified, he washed the feet of those who would betray him, would scatter, and would ultimately um, send him to the cross. We have an undying hope in our faith because Jesus was and is victorious and because we were bought with a price. Our selfish desires died with our old selves and now we are a new creation to live righteously because we belong to Christ because our former selves have died. Let's pray.